Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 254 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I got to see one of my favourite humans get married in fittingly fine style and another dear friend danced so enthusiastically he ripped his trousers open. What a weekend! Nice. (laughs) Not living life by the seat of his pants because they are destroyed. Well done, Al. Wowzers. And well done, Nick Miller and Laura. Yes, yeah, congratulations. congratulations. I don't really know what to say. He's <laughs> <laughs> not Nick Miller anymore. He's Nick Jackson Miller. Oh, very modern. Isn't it? Very Isn't modern. It? I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and thanks to Jen's chat a few weeks ago with all Jen eyes, I've got rid of 41 things from my house in a week. 41? Wow. 41. What was the weirdest thing that you got rid of? Uh, a vibrator in a Rivita <laughs> box. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. You've just moved that to a different cracker box. <laughs> <laughs> it was mostly boring stuff, to be honest. What I did get rid of quite a lot of was I like whiskey and people always buy me whiskey glasses, but there's only so many whiskey glasses a girl needs. And mm-hmm. I could cater a small wedding with the amount of glasses in my house. So I got rid of quite a lot of glasses. Okay. Also, socks that that aren't actual pairs. Does that count? I feel like that might be cheating. I don't think so. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't don't mean to be strict. I don't mean to be Miss Harridan about this, but it just feels a little bit like that's cheating. Why is it cheating to get rid of a pair of socks? That's one item. Oh, but you said socks that weren't pairs. Yeah, Yeah. I don't think that's cheating because, you know, you can end up with a lot of those. Yeah, well, I, every time I threw two out, I counted it as a pair of socks. Oh, I see. No, now I'm on board. I didn't understand. I thought you were counting each odd sock as a pair of socks that you no, got no, rid of. No, no, no. But even if I did, I think that would be an item. But no, I always leave them on the side thinking that eventually their their pair yeah. will materialise. And sometimes it, they do because one of the places they tend to hide is in uh, inside duvet covers. Mm. So sometimes they do. But... Some of them have been up there for like a year. Their pair is never, ever coming back. So I just got rid of them. Good work. I'm Jen Offord and I'm a little bit in love with Mel Gidroish. Flippin' heck, did you see? I didn't watch Eurovision because I don't watch Eurovision, but I think like form an orderly queue, lads. Bloody hell. When she was being some sort of Polish butter churner. Yeah. Which is now a euphemism for all sorts of things. <laughs> I have no idea what either of you are talking about, but I did like her when I met her. So, yeah, Yeah, no, she was lovely. She was lovely, but um... she wasn't dressed in dungarees in this particular video clip, though, Hannah. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I I didn't watch Eurovision. I don't know much about it. Apparently, Iceland were robbed. Cover of Atomic Kitten or something like that. I don't know. A lot of people have been talking about it. You were allowed to enter with a cover? Did they enter with a cover or did they just perform? A co- I don't know the details. I didn't watch it, but apparently it was a nod to the host city of Liverpool. So lovely right. stuff. Because otherwise everyone would just enter with Waterloo every year, right? Atomic Kitten, Liverpool's most famous export. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the joy of Eurovision, I suppose, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe it is to people who love Eurovision. Coming up, multi-hyphenate whirlwind, Stevie Martin chats to me about digital frustration, becoming a COVID sensation, her new YouTube pilot screen time, and how her bum is. I mean, I have been worried. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I told her everyone was asking. (laughs) I speak to writer, actor and director Daniela Isaacs about her new audio drama, People Who Knew Me, which is coming soon to BBC Sounds. 
In Jenny Off The Blocks, we're looking ahead to the French Open and in Rated or Dated, we ask ourselves, is this Jeremy Hunt's vision of the future as we watch (laughs) 2003's Daddy Daycare? But first, we haven't totally given up on the news yet. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. You'll find no behind-the-scenes feuds here. Wowzers. Mm. Um, it's it's quite messy, isn't it? The old this morning, uh, Debra Watsits. That's not sustainable. I would imagine by the time this is out, something will likely have happened. Doesn't look fun at all. It has been going on for quite some time already, so it could well drag on for ages. But It feels like an implosion is imminent, though, right? Like, there's yeah. been rumbles on the Richter scale, and I'm, I'm mixing many, many metaphors. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, I saw someone the other day saying, amongst all of this talk about Philip Schofield, everyone seems to have forgotten about him pushing in the queue. And I thought, is this our major priority? <laughs> it's interesting that that's the thing you're really angry about. But mm. anyway. I feel like there's going to be other stuff that people are angry about, Hannah. I'm not, <laughs> not going to say too much more. So... Let's talk about, entirely unconnected, let's talk about the Victims <laughs> and Prisoners Bill. And they'll have fun, fun, fun till their daddy takes the news in the way. <laughs> Which is exactly what Parliament will be doing this afternoon. That's Monday, as we record. Initially proposed as the Victims Bill, the government says the package of laws will strengthen victims' rights. Not so, says Claire Waxman the Victims Commissioner for London, who initially started campaigning for a Victims Bill back in 2013. Victims Commissioner is a weird title, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. We've got some freelance victims coming on in. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, Hannah. Go back to the serious news, please. Waxman said the bill had been, quote, hijacked by Dominic Raab in (laughs) in a bid to increase government powers at the same time as diluting victims' claims. Raab added a number of controversial clauses to the bill, which had already been through public consultation, changes which would have given him the power to veto release of prisoners and alter parole boards. I say would have because Raab is no longer the Justice Secretary, having been forced to resign over bullying claims. Oh, how sad. Never mind. Carry on. Couldn't have happened to a more unpleasant guy. Women's Aid and the End Violence Against Women Coalition are also calling for Ralph's additions to be removed and, quote, a return to promises made by government in 2015. Who was Prime Minister in 2015, Helen? I can't even remember. (laughs) Was it Robert Peel? Yes, correct. Carry on. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Meanwhile... In an open letter, 150 signatories, including Rape Crisis and Refuge, have called for fully funded support for people coming forward to report sexual abuse to be included in the upcoming Victims Bill. Encouraging abuse victims to come forward without it, the letter says, is, quote, totally irresponsible. Mm. The letter was written by Charlie Webster, whose friend, only known as Katie, helped convict their running coach, who had abused them both as teenagers but later took her own life. Paul North was jailed for 10 years after Katie and another victim reported him to police. Katie, then 18, gave evidence against him in court. But after his conviction, her mother Sue said her daughter was abandoned by the criminal justice system. 
Rape Crisis England and Wales reports it currently has 14,000 survivors on its waiting lists. And Jane Butler, its CEO, told the BBC that demand for the charity's service has increased by 38% in the last year, which, quote, clearly demonstrates the pressures on specialist services which have been unable to meet demand for a long time. She added, I want to see a victim's bill that gives victims and survivors what Katie and Charlie never had. If the government truly wishes to make a difference with this bill, it must provide the funding needed to support it. Definitely. And that, right. you know, it's always going to come down to money with this shower, isn't it? Yep. So, Hannah, I have a question for you. Yes. Are you braced? I am. She is. How much of the internet do you believe? I'd say uh, pretty much all of it. Oh, okay. Okay. And follow-up question, you okay, hun? <laughs> I believe I would say oh, almost nothing. Almost the opposite, yeah, to be honest. I eventually come to believe a lot of it, but at first glance, I automatically assume that anything I read online is probably bullshit. I don't think that's a bad way to tackle the internet, if I'm <laughs> honest with you. We are in an era where fake news quite often appears to be winning. So should we be surprised that while facts are for losers, they're not, they're not big fans of facts, both of us here, people on social media are being less than truthful with their faces. And does it matter? Well, yeah, I I think it does. I am, of course, talking about the hugely sophisticated photo and video retouching apps, which have long been used by magazines, being at the fingertips of normies like you and me. Not you, Hannah. I know (laughs) that you don't do the gram or the tickety-tock. I don't even try and make myself look better in real life, (laughs) let alone (laughs) online. And I'm not talking about slapping a vivid cool filter on your face so it looks better lit. Software such as Facetune and Perfect 365 can totally transform how a person looks, not just smoothing wrinkles, but narrowing their face, changing the shape and size of their eyes or giving them a digital nose job. And it's not just for static photos either. Facetune and Perfect 365, I mean, fucking hell, the pressure in that name alone, work in videos as well. And when it comes to Joan and Joe Public, it's catfishing yourself, really, isn't it? I'll talk about the mental health ramifications a bit more in a bit, but digitally tweaking your face on social media is surely only going to make you less satisfied with what you see in the mirror or take with you on the bus, into the office, to parties, on holiday... Mm. It all gets a bit stickier when we look more closely at the use of image-altering apps by social media advertisers and influencers, people who are supposed to be one of us. 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 And use that status to flog products in a more informal way. Because as much as we're meant to believe that kindness is all and it's what's inside that counts, Mm. being a looker sells. Should they be telling their followers when their face is not actually their face? Yes. And not because of hashtag kindly gifted moisturiser. Well, Hannah, and indeed some countries who (laughs) maybe potentially have a tiny bit more influence than Hannah, I don't know. Uh, I've sent out a questionnaire, we'll find (laughs) out. Think, yes, they should. Back in 2021, Norway enacted a new regulation that made it illegal for influencers and advertisers alike to post a retouch photo without labelling it as such as an amendment to the country's 2009 Marketing Act. France is in the process of demanding the same requirement, but for both photos and videos. 
And now the UK is looking at the same issue as the government's online safety bill continues to make its way through Parliament. I feel like it's been making its way through Parliament for a good 32 years. <laughs> yeah. Although it isn't yet clear whether the law will target just adverts on social media or influencers as well. And look, I, I do think that most of us know that Instagram is basically a highlights reel of folks' real lives, with the people we follow much more likely to share the images of them on a once-in-a-lifetime holiday or in a particularly nice restaurant bathroom than snaps of them crying and eating trifle with their hands. <laughs> Actually, TikTok, I think, does have a decent amount of crying being shared, usually while dancing. I don't really understand it. TikTok seems to be almost exclusively crying or shouting in your car. Yes, yeah, who knew that we needed... Well, clearly we don't need this because neither of us are on it. You know when you come away from an argument and you think, oh my God, wouldn't it have been brilliant if I said that? Mm. TikTok just seems to be people getting into their car and then pretending that they did say it. Mm. And we're back to how much do you believe of the internet, Hannah, yeah. I think, aren't we? Yeah. 100%. <laughs> yeah. She's got issues, listeners. She's got issues. She doesn't know about the behind-scenes feuds that we've been having. <laughs> anyway... My point is, there is an element of editing and truth-tweaking when we're scrolling through Insta, but it can still be devastating to people's mental health, particularly impressionable kids and young adults. For example, according to a 2021 survey by skincare brand Dove, 80% of teenage girls said they had changed their appearance in an online photo by the age of 13. Wow. It's really upsetting. As someone who was so dysmorphic about her nose growing up that I sometimes refused to leave the house, I can't imagine how being able to change it online but not in real leaving the house mm. life would have affected me. I'm going to go with not positively. Indeed, Dr Shara Brown, an emergency physician in a hospital in Canada, told the BBC that, quote, we see the urgent mental health consequences of social media in our departments on a daily basis, such as anxiety suicidal thoughts and depression and if you're listening thinking oh but it's obvious when someone's used a filter or face tuned then i'm not going to doubt your fake spotting abilities but i am going to say that these bits of software are very clever and getting more clever and harder to spot all the time yeah there's a relatively famous woman all of our listeners should know who she is, who regularly posts pictures of herself on social media and claims that they are not filtered when they are so obviously filtered that the people next to her look like boiled eggs. And <laughs> it's a bit like Michael Jackson said he'd never had plastic surgery, so I can't believe mm. a single word that comes out of his mouth. I just think if you want to put a filter on, that's fine. But if anyone asks you if that's filtered and you say no... You're only damaging your own reputation by doing that. But if you are actively selling something to mm. someone or you are in a position where you are a person that is talking to a lot of young people, then perhaps in the same way you needed to use to stamp the word advertorial on copy that was an advertorial, then it's a mm. similar sort of thing. You had a problem with your nose. You can look better, but it's going to make people's reaction to you when you go into the real world even worse because you don't look like that. Exactly. And then they're going to concentrate on the thing that you've altered because you've alerted them to the fact. It feels like a slippery slope, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't even wear makeup, Mickey, so I really genuinely don't care what I look like. But there were points in my life, obviously, when I did. When everyone started using Zoom, I remember someone telling me, I think it was Vic Slayton, told me about like there's a little thing that you can get zoom to enhance your appearance and 
I don't have it on, in case you're wondering, Hannah. This is just my natural good looks. Um, but I tried it and I looked like a thumb. I looked like a blurry thumb. And I was like, is that, is that what makes me look better? Is just looking like a blurry thumb. You can go too far with these things, I think. There was a point when before, not before the internet, but certainly before a lot of social media, when... I felt like we were making progress when a lot of the magazines were having to say if they'd airbrushed someone. Mm, yeah. And all of that progress has been lost. Totally. Yeah, totally. Anyway, Mickey, would you like a bit of nice news? You bet yourself. You Whoa, I, oh, I don't know what I was saying then. Should <laughs> <laughs> I try again? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> As if the Bush Telegraph being back after weeks isn't good news enough. Good news for who, Hannah? <laughs> <laughs> Not looking news for me this morning when I had to try and find something to write about and look on Twitter without seeing succession spoilers. It's getting increasingly hard on a Monday morning. Anyway, as you probably know, Eurovision happened last week and well done Liverpool for putting on what was, by all accounts, a very successful show. Mm-hmm. And on Thursday, it hosted the release of a new album by Ukrainian artist Jamala who herself won the competition in 2016. Called Quirim, the album is a collection of folk songs from Jamala's home in Crimea, which she's been barred from visiting since Russia's annexation of the region in 2014. Last week, songs from the album were also performed in Kyiv with Ukraine's National Symphony Orchestra. Jamala said, It's not just an album for me, it's not only music, it's something more. It's my attempt to give a strong voice to my homeland, to Crimea. Oh, that is good. That is really lovely. That is really nice. Maybe she could come and give some extra lessons to my neighbour, who is not only learning the piano, but now the electric guitar. Wowzers. I know. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I'm once again cheating a slam dunk by visiting the Daily Mail sidebar of shame. Look, I am a bit under the weather for various reasons, and so I'm taking the easy win. And also, who could resist the headline, Woman is slammed for sheer wedding dress her mother would hate. That's what you want to read in a national newspaper? Her mother would hate. Mm. And you know, Hannah... That's what I thought, but I've fallen for the clickbait. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Nope, this is basically a comment-baiting story about the comments on a comment-baiting story <laughs> posted by a bridal boutique in the US. But oh my, the comments on what a woman should and indeed shouldn't wear. If you're imagining from that headline a fully see-through frock with nary a nipple pasty in sight, you'd be wrong. It's one of those dresses with a sort of front leg window, you know, also all no. covered to just below the crotch and then hello knees and she looks smashing she looks really lovely not that it's any of my beeswax turns out that headline was just a search engine teaser for the real thing which when you go onto the daily mail website which obviously this all comes with a caveat of i do not recommend the full headline is bride is labeled tacky after choosing a sheer wedding dress in spite of her mother's request for modesty colon it is my day not hers that is a collection of words which doesn't even work as a sentence let alone a header while at the same time serving us the whole story <laughs> well done i don't know well done anyway a woman chose a dress to wear for a wedding and people had opinions and this is news my favorite bits of the story 
include those who suggest she also wear a slip being called boomers. <laughs> Although, to be fair, when was the last time anyone wore a slip? Oh, I've got a sequin skirt, and if I don't wear a slip, it chafes. So probably like four months ago. Oh, okay. But yeah, I am the only known person to still own a fucking slip. It's true. The sinister comment, choices have consequences. Fucking hell. <laughs> and the DM's very own upper thighs, which I'm, I'm very excited to hopefully see soon on a story about a semi-famous woman in a short skirt with a header, the upper thighs, the limit. <laughs> you can have that one for free, Daily Mail. But my favourite lol was DM commenter and Little Ray of Sunshine, Iago, don't know if that's his real name, who wrote, quote, Truth is that the wedding may be the highlight, then real life kicks in and all these so-called friends and relatives want your life to be as unfulfilling and pointless as they have allowed their own to be. It's a great dress and she should stick to her guns. <laughs> I think Iago needs a cuddle. Anyone? Anyone volunteer? I still don't understand her mother would have. Yeah, her mother did hate it. So she chose it even though she knew her mum would hate it. Woman is slammed for sheer wedding dress her mother would hate. I mean, did hate seems like the correct. If you want to tackle the job of correcting the Daily Mail, Hannah. <laughs> Where would it end, Mickey? Where will it end? I don't really understand how this even came to be a story. Although I could say that about 95% of the stuff that the <laughs> Daily Mail prints, to be honest. Again, Hannah, if you want to sort out <laughs> what the Daily Mail editorial is playing at, then uh, I don't usually say this at this point, but more news next week. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by comedian, writer, actor, fellow podcaster and big time brightener up of my time on the internet, Stevie Martin. Stevie, hello. Hello. It's a very nice intro, thank you. Well, it's, it's very nice that you appear on my timeline. I mean, the Twitter timeline of Doom and then you pop up and I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. Well, I'm glad I'm still popping up. I just thought that it was only like Nazis. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to say friend of Elon. That should have been in the intro as well. Yes, yes. I'm his daughter. Um, <laughs> wow. And that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dad. <laughs> what are you playing at? You are, Stephen Martin, a bone fide, COVID born internet sensation. How do you feel about that? I don't think that is correct, but that's very kind. It also ma- makes it sound like I was made and created from a lab in Wuhan. Millions of people, and we're talking like 45 millions watched you and Lola Rose Maxwell in sketches that satirise our increasing obsession with our phones and the digital modern world during lockdown. Can you give listeners a little pressy of what you two take the piss out of, please? Yeah, it's funny because we didn't like intend to get into that such niche territory. We started <laughs> before lockdown. I I was like, uh, I think I'm going to do some online stuff in like 2019. I was like, I think I'm going to do some online stuff. And so me and Lena did some sketches. Like the first ones were just about like I think I was acting and doing like self tapes, and they were about those going wrong, and then tr- trying to take a photo of yourself and like, things like that. And they would, didn't really do anything. And then when lockdown happened, obviously we. I wasn't doing anything other than Zooms and just I was just on my computer or on my phone all day. So uh-huh. then we started to do sketches about that. So the first one, actually, really, the first one that went viral was about trying to get paid as a freelancer because a certain women's magazine hadn't paid me for like seven months because I used to be a journalist. And I was just like so bored and so angry. They wrote it, 
But then the one that went like insanely viral, like millions and millions and millions, was about how when you try and do anything on the internet, it, yeah, you have to like do the capture code to, yeah. to verify that you're not a robot. Are you a robot? So <laughs> yes. So we did one about are, are you are you are you or are you not a robot? And that did very very well. And then and then like basically the, the general theme is like tends to be it's. I would say it's like observations about life, but actually our Western life, our life is so rooted in tech. So like mm-hmm. buying stuff is now buying stuff online and that's incredibly frustrating and annoying. Just trying to like return something. Now actually trying to just post anything. There's like 70 different postal services now that all mm-hmm. require different drop-off lockers. They're like It's just mad. And also then when like the world was opening up again after lockdown... Then you had stuff like trying to order drinks with QR codes. Yeah. When the waiters arrive there, and you're like, no, but can you just get me? I, I can't. It's not. And they're like, no, sorry, you have to use the app. And that came from like my dad's birthday, and we were all tr- just trying to order stuff. My dad was just like, I don't want to do it. And it's like, right, this is actually very good. And then we like tried to book our first holiday after, <laughs> um, and then just the, the booking of the flights was like, where <laughs> like, everything's actually a nightmare now. So, um, <laughs> That's what the sketches are rooted in, yeah. So they're born of genuine frustration. I feel like all good comedy is born from someone being like, that is so annoying. Even if they don't present it like that. It's just, it's got to be extreme emotion. I don't think anything's born from, isn't that nice? (laughs) That is true, actually. Like, nice things, it's, it's like reviewers. You can have much more fun writing a mean review than a nice review. Although I would say if you're going to be mean, don't put it down in writing. But, you know... That doesn't mean to say I've not done it in the past and had a lovely time. <laughs> so now there is eight and a half minutes of joy slash digital frustration with Screen Time, a YouTube pilot of what you describe as a sketch show for people who can't get off their phones to watch on their phones so they can have a laugh about phones. I watched it on my laptop. Am I in trouble? Uh, yeah, <laughs> we, uh, the, the headache that we had about like how to make like it look, work on a laptop and also work on a phone. It, it just doesn't look as good on a laptop. It looks like I don't know what YouTube is. <laughs> so we were so <laughs> I've been so stressed about it. that's why that that's the only reason we put like to watch on your phone because when you watch it full screen on your phone, it does look like it was meant to look. But you can still watch it on your laptop. You watch it on TV. I mean, it looks terrible, but you, you can. <laughs> I had a lovely time. I think it worked really oh, well. Good. I couldn't turn my laptop round quite as easily because there's a bit yes. where it, it changes there's direction a, there's a portrait lock joke which people were like that and then on youtube people were commenting like yeah that was a bit annoying it was like that is the point <laughs> <laughs> okay. was it strange making something so much longer because i know it takes probably i think i read in an interview it takes you and lola a day to do a sketch that gets honed down to a very tight very sharp two minutes and this is eight and a half minutes yeah, it'd be longer. So it actually, well, sort of now, if we, we haven't done one in a while because I've been working on this, but like if we do them, we tend to, it takes me like, I don't know, half a day to kind of like write it, then look back at it, add jokes, and then maybe be like 40 minutes to an hour to actually film it. Because we basically just do the script and then we'll do some like improv things. It tends to be quite scripted. And then it, but then the editing is the thing that takes the longest by far so we will have written a five minute thing and then you just have to like cut it down but yeah this was absurd also because like the production company approached me in april with something completely different 
And then I was like, I don't really want to do that. I'd like to do this. I, I was going to do like a sketch show just for like loads of people that I know and it'd be really fun. But then I, I, as I was writing it, I was like, I, no, I just, I, I, I just want to work with Lana because the... uh, she's great. Feels like the right thing to do because these sketches have done well. So why do something completely different? Yeah. And um, it, to be honest, even if I wanted to, I don't think I could have because at that point I was in so that mode. Like, oh, they didn't take a long time to like write the first few drafts because it was just like one of our sketches. But it was so fun to be able to just like do whatever because it's not on. We we film the sketches on Zoom and I do the graphics and stuff as well, and they're very limited because I'm very bad. But to know that we could do anything. So some of the stuff that I wrote in, we we couldn't achieve in the final thing. Um, like there's loads of like odd jokes in the background meant to be going on that we that just didn't work because we didn't have the budget and you know like it's but it was really fun to be able to be like what if we do this and when it, and then we're in this we're in a different location and you can see our bodies <laughs> but then also trying to figure out how to go into the phones and switch between phones and actual like us looking at our phones in normal life was so hard because with the sketches you're just in it and, and you can just like be like everyone understands the context but it's really hard not to make it look lame. So I really hope that we've done that in a way that doesn't make it look lame. That's because we've got this great editor and the guy who directed it called Andrew Nolan, who's just brilliant. And I was like, I can't visualise things unless I've seen it. So I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and he like, helped. Like, get, he just, yeah, the editing took so long that by, by, by the time it came out, I was really worried that loads of stuff will have dated because obviously the world is moving so fast. So and already fast. in between filming it and it coming out, I would have done something about Be Real, that the new sort of social media app that like I'm on, and like it's been, like there were loads of things that like, oh, I could have done more on that, and then TikTok sort of changed. Um, but we'd kind of the so that's the challenge of like trying to put online stuff into something longer because the whole nature of it is it's so throwaway and fast, and then one day there's a big story, and the next day you no know, one's talking about it anymore, and it's really cringe to talk about it. So it's really hard lots of producers are like were asking me to do stuff about online trends and it's like by the time you've put it on youtube you look like a 70 year old person like <laughs> who has no idea about online yeah it's like when i list the various social platforms that i will and won't use and i still say you're not going to get me on snapchat i don't even think that's a thing anymore that's how out of touch i am I'm like do they yeah. do the kids still snapchat i don't know I don't even know. And also the fact that I'm doing, like, thankfully now, because I'm older, it's like the audience is sort of squarely like millennials. Like, I'm not going to pretend to write a sketch show for Gen Z because they don't watch them. (laughs) If not, it was like, I'm too old. Like, and that's fine. So it's, it's, it's good to actually finally be a bit older and not even when I was like tw- in, in, in my 20s the whole thing was like we've got to get the 18 year old and you're like I don't know how to do it. they don't care no so it's quite comfortable now to be like I'm just doing it for people like anyone anyone who would like to have a laugh like they can be cut up into little sketches and put on TikTok and, and whatever but they're not like it is like little 10 minutes that this little standalone 10 minute episodes yeah but that's the joy of screen time and the sketches that kind of predated screen time is it is about the frustration of dealing with the digital world. So I think um, like Gen X and the millennials, we are the ones who are like, we weren't brought up on it. This is 
still a bit different yeah. to us. Whereas kids today are like, they come out of the fucking womb with a phone in their hand. You know, they know exactly yeah. what they're doing. And we're like, I don't understand how I, I've ordered this dress, which is one of the things that yeah, comes just... up. And you're like, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not as annoyed by it. They're probably struggling without realising that it's phones or realising that they can't kind of di- disconnect because there's no differentiation between their life and online it's all the same thing whereas for us i think we're aware of the time before and we're aware that it's not good and like i'm aware that my attention span is now so bad so that's why screen time is so fast because it's like i wanted to make it feel like i feel when i've been on my phone too much my brain almost feels like it's going to be sick like it's like yeah like, oh you know you've got re- tiktok is really <laughs> bad like it, you sort of feel kind of ill in your head like you actually feel this feeling and I not it, hopefully screen time doesn't make you feel ill in your head because there's little bits <laughs> breaks where me and Lola are actually chatting. But there's in your phone. I want and it's so it's so helpful as well because it means if you write like a bad punchline, you can just be like, "We'll just cut halfway through a word because the person has scrolled something else." You're like, oh yeah, great. <laughs> so this is a pilot, and I'm hopeful that that means there will be more. Oh yeah! Oh sure, I'm I'm on my way to Hollywood right now to make it into a film, a Marvel film. No, and we've actually got we are we are talking to like a couple of people, as in relevant, but not not like random people in <laughs> channels and things to just try to yeah. So we're talking to a couple of people to hopefully get money to make more. Which that's the main thing. I want to just have money to make more and for it to be something that isn't like compromised into being something different like i want to be able to make 10 minutes of of that again and we have have like you know it build and there's like a little through line of sort of a little plot running through it but it's basically a phone sketch show and i really like the idea of it being for people's phones but i know that that is also quite difficult to do so we're just talking through a lot of different options what's been nice is the response has been so excellent and so I felt really like, well, if it doesn't get made, then at least I've made something that people I respect and would like to think I'm good have gone, that's good. I'm like, well, that's all I need. I just need like a little badge, like at school, you know, like a excellent work. Good. That's very important. Also, I've watched it like three or four times now and picked up new things each time. Uh, and it's not because I'm stupid. I, I do know how to watch something, but it's there's too loads fast. in it. It's too fast. Loads it's videos. too fast. Yeah. No, it is too fast. And we, we, we meant to hide. Like at the last minute, I was like, "Oh, we should like a director's commentary of it where me and Lola like talk." And um, and I, I thought that would be fun because there were there were some really funny things that happened when we were filming it. Then it seemed really navel gazing. So the director's commentary is just stupid. <laughs> it's like it's actually then there's now another layer, which is actually on top of the seventy layers, and it's probably too many layers. But um, that's my dream to be able to like get money to make it and also alongside have a, like a silly director's commentary running throughout as well so you've got like you can watch the series but you can also watch the series over the top of the series where me and actual lola have a little plot going over the top of <laughs> like yeah just just enough that it's it people explode that one yeah okay explode and not make and us not more in the head yeah totally yeah well i watched the so. director's commentary and uh had a hashtag lovely time and actually lola asked you a question in the director's commentary of screen time that I was going to ask you anyway, and I am going to ask it, but I'm not going to give any context for people who haven't seen Screen Time yet and they just need to go and watch it. And the question is this, did your bum hurt? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, my bum hurt. And because um, it was very thin material, I won't give any context either. Um, very thin, thin material. So they were worried it was actually going to rip. And I was worried that my bum would rip as, <laughs> through it. So then we put it on wheels and then it was so loud that uh, and we did it quite, we, we ran really over. So, and we didn't have a license to film in that studio, in that street. So the, uh, we didn't have any budget. So the uh, old woman came out, well, quite a few people came out and shouted out. Uh, yeah. And it was just me being pulled along. It's like, sorry. <laughs> okay. So listeners, if you want to know what that is about, you should watch Screen Time. You should watch it anyway. It is on the YouTube Watch it on your phone, do what you're supposed to do, but it still works on a laptop. Or, you know, maybe get your mates around on a big projector screen. Let's see how that goes. Yeah. I think that would work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would work. That, that would work, yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, next. Tell us what happens when you and Tessa Coates get together on your podcast, Nobody Panic. Oh, magic. Magic and fun. But, 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 but it's, it's true. No, it's, it's great. It's great. It's nice because we've been friends for a long, long time. And um, now we've figured out that, like, well, we have to start hanging out socially more intentionally because basically what happens is when we do Nobody Panic, it's like we're hanging out. So it's, we hang yeah. out like intensely for like eight hours for the first Monday of every month. And then we're like, right, we're done. <laughs> no, we just don't hang out anymore. <laughs> like, you know, we also do need to see each other and have a fun time. But no, it's great. I, it's one of my favourite things to do and I cannot believe that we are still able to do it this amount of time. We've been here for seven years now. How are there still how-tos that we haven't... I mean, we are scraping the barrel. Like, this, the last episode that came out was... Also, the context is we have a podcast, which is a comedy self-help podcast, and each episode is how-to. And in between the normal ones, we're starting to sneak in these, like, mad, incredibly niche ones. And the last one, Tessa's been tutoring her cousin through a particular GCSE uh, exam paper. So I was like, we could do it as a bonus, but like we shouldn't do it as a main episode. And then it what came out as a main episode, and it's... Um, how to pass the GCSE Shakespeare brackets, the Tempest exam, AQA and Tessa just teaches me how to pass the uh, Tempest exam. Very funny if you have got no idea about anything. <laughs> Learned a lot. Learned a lot. Well, I haven't listened to that one, but I have listened to quite a lot of them. And it's, it's genuinely really good advice. And I'm sorry that I sound surprised there, but I was. Well, I think there's a lot of pod- there's a lot of podcasts on there about things like that, and so we do try to make it like genuinely helpful. It is genuinely helpful. So, what are your how to be a grown up qualifications? Why am I taking advice from you? Oh, we don't have any. So it, it got it started in like 2014 when all of that like adulting stuff was quite new and fresh, shall we say? Because I used to work at the Debrief, which is like a w- online women's magazine that then sadly went under, and Nobody Panic started as the Debrief podcast. And so we would be paid to basically do a companion podcast for their mag- for their magazine. I think it was like twenty six, and then um, we would like messes, and that was the point. Like we were quite exceptionally messes, even by the standards of normal mess. Like we just would didn't know anything, and so we would learn stuff and get people in and like help. And then as we've got older, what's nice is I think the podcast has taught us quite a lot. And uh-huh. so I find myself in situations where I'd be like, this is what we say in the podcast. Like, you've got to... It's become so about, like, um, perspective now. And, like, pretty much everything is... Like, we did an episode about... Um, I just really don't like having baths. <laughs> and Tess is, like, really into them. <laughs> like, in a weird way. Like, she has, like, the half bath, which is where she wears clothes and a hat and just Winnie the Pooh's it and get, gets in a, a shallow bath. That's not a thing. You said that to me as if it was a thing. That's eccentricity, it, that. 
It really is. And she's done that like while I've been around her house. Like I've, I've, I've come around for a visit and then she's like, what was one second? And then she's just in the bath. Um, so and so, I, so I, I thought that would be just like a, a light-hearted fun episode. And then it just became this thing, like everything does, it became so inside, like I actually didn't like baths because it turns out that I've got this idea of what having a bath is and it's got to be perfect and it's like scented candles. And actually it's not about the bath, it's about the bath of my mind. And it's about like, changing the perspective and lowering my expectations and doing what i want to do and having the assertiveness to go this is what i i can have a bath however i like like for example tessa in a hat but i i'm much more anxious no i won't i mean i did try it it was weird it was a weird feeling but i'm much more anxious and like perfectionist and tessa is sort of incredibly eccentric and so it (laughs) works as uh it's just me for an hour being like what tessa what and then but also, she obviously her way of living is really is like rubbed off on me, and like really, yeah. So like, I think there's something in that about like there's no there's no qualifications, but I think it's quite nice to hear people like genuinely trying to work through stuff, not in that kind of like we're just two comedians and we're just going to chat. Like we actually do chat, but we do want to work out the issue and deep and drill down deep into it. Like recently, we we recorded one where because Tessa froze her eggs. And it made me go, I think I'm going to freak freeze my eggs. And I did freak freeze my eggs, had a nightmare at the time, was like, actually, we have to do a follow up because we've been like, it's actually, you know, the, the process is fine, but I found the process harrowing. So now we have to do the ha- Stevie's, Stevie's harrowing version for everybody to listen to. You know, like, so it's very much born of our own experience and we get it wrong all the time. I've spoken a lot there. Sorry. <laughs> and I love that the, the kind of the, the rapport that you have with Lola and with Tessa is just so engaging and so contagious it's lovely and you do deal with issues even in screen time which is very fast and kind of talking about our throwaway culture i was delighted to see some class warrior content in there as a fellow uh, a working class northerner i was like oh hello <laughs> that's my so i have this thing where it's like i don't i want everything to be as broad as possible and i don't want to so i don't really do anything political particularly like i just want to make people laugh and i, I want to make you laugh like regardless of how you are or what you feel they're like but <laughs> really found Lola's like working class from Croydon and and uh Tessa very much isn't but like I've really found my like that is my chip on my shoulder which we did in Nobody Panic episode which is how to remove the chip from your shoulder because I was like it is very much money <laughs> what else are you up to because I know obviously you still are a jobbing comic as well I am I haven't written like a jobbing stand-up business for like a long, long, long time since like 2019. But I've just started making another show. I'm doing gigs and stuff and then going to do like a little work in progress at the Soho Theatre in London the end of July. Then I might have a little break and then next year I'm probably going to have that as a proper show and maybe do a little tour maybe maybe do the like a bit of the fringe yeah, and then I just have like writing jobs and stuff on, on the go where I write I like write stuff for other comedians or writing stuff that I'm currently developing myself and constantly wanting to write a novel and not doing it like so that's yeah <laughs> that's basically it and where can people keep an eye on what you're up to and find out when that novel is due please sure yeah yeah um, <laughs> um, I'm I on my social media is I'm at Stevie M the S is a five uh, I regret it but it is as it was it is Stevie, thank you so much for chatting with me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. (laughs) 
Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by actor, writer and director Daniela Isaacs. Thank you ever so much for joining me. Thanks so much. I'm very happy to chat with you. Now we're here to talk about the 10 part audio drama People Who Knew Me, which begins on BBC Sounds on the 23rd of May, which you did all of those things in, act, write and direct. Well done. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's based on the novel by Kim Hooper, which might be familiar to some of our listeners, but for those who isn't, can you start up by telling us a little bit about the story and what it was that drew you to it? When I first read the kind of blurb of the novel, it was something like, Uh, A woman fakes her death in 9-11 and 14 years later is forced to confront her past. And that's kind of what drew me to wanting to do. (laughs) Yeah, that's quite the pitch, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, it was that. It was incredibly seductive. And then also, as you will learn across the series, this lead character, Connie, really fascinated me because she's got a really confused relationship with lies and truth. And that's something that she really has to confront in her journey, really. When I first saw the press release, I completely missed the bit where it said it was based on a novel. And <laughs> I thought, yeah, that could totally happen. That, yeah. and, and for a second, I thought, is this a true story? The idea that September the 11th would provide people with the opportunity to fake their own death. I mm-hmm. just thought, well, of course, that must have happened. That must have happened. Surely. A little bit of research in terms of did that happen? Because I similarly was like, come on, there must be a true story here. And I found one person, I think her name's Sneha Ann Phillips. And there's a big kind of question mark around her. Yeah, what happened, whether she died in 9-11 or whether she ran away or something else. Um, So she kind of really interested me. But also, we're still not sure. Like, there's still people that we don't know whether they died or disappeared. So Mm. it may very well have happened. Well, if they've done it well, yes, there's no reason for us to know. The other thing that interested me was, of all the famous cases of people, because, I mean, you only know about them when they get uncovered, but the sort of the big famous cases about people who've attempted to fake their own death, they've all been men. Well, maybe women are just better at it. Yeah, maybe. There is that, yeah. (laughs) I hope so. So obviously this isn't about, or as far as I have listened to, I've listened to the first two episodes, and it's not about September the 11th directly. Obviously it's about the opportunity that's afforded to the character by September the 11th. But it is about cancer, and they both are sensitive issues. I did a lot of research, and I've had a lot of personal kind of connections with people who are either still struggling with cancer or have recovered or have sadly passed away. So I I feel like through those connections, I've got a real understanding of various people's experiences. So I think I did use that quite a lot. And, And one of the main things I took from that was I was so aware of with something so dramatic, such as cancer, there's so much boring stuff within it. Yeah. And I really wanted to kind of sit in that waiting which is what this lead character Connie is going through and just see what came up for her throughout that waiting if that Mm. makes sense yeah and bizarrely for her yeah cancer is awful and she's potentially facing her own kind of mortality but what's really taking over is her really chaotic and messy past and difficult decisions Mm. and I found that partnership really interesting yeah and you're spot on about that idea of you know, the sort of monotony. It's not always about the drama, is it? You know, it's a bit like death isn't always about the drama. It's largely about the admin. 
and then yeah. you forget about that. But yeah, yeah, and I quite, I quite enjoyed kind of getting into her brain and finding the the kind of dark humor, I guess, within some of her experience. And I don't know, she sits in these endless waiting rooms with other people who are also experiencing a similar thing and talking to doctors who say the same thing every day. And I just kind of really enjoyed finding the humour within it, mm. even though, of course, it is really, really dark and, yeah. and, and difficult. Well, dark me. stuff is really, really funny. And you are working, one of your exec producers on this is probably the queen of laughing at things that you shouldn't laugh at, Sharon Hawken. Yeah. So I wonder if you can tell me what you've learned from working with her. Well, both, I guess, working with her and, and her company, which is Merman, what they're kind of excellent at is exactly what you just said, kind of finding the light within the darkness. And that was always my goal, to just try and bring out that levity. And, and everyone there really, really helped me with that. So as often as I could, I said, can I read it to you? Or can we have a <laughs> share? Can we do another sharing? And, and yeah, let me absorb all the notes, because I, I really like hearing people's thoughts before going back in and giving it another go. She's fantastic, Sharon Hogan. Yes, she, she really is. She really is. And you can I think you can really see her influence starting to spread out now. Almost any female writer that you talk to when you ask about who are your inspirations kind of thing, she comes up all the time. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Tell me why an audio drama? What do you think the advantages of an audio drama are? And again, for anyone who might not have listened to one before, what differentiates it from a radio play, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I wonder if that really is just kind of wording. I had never done an audio drama before, and I'm a big podcast listener. And so I really wanted to take on the challenge so that I could get people like me mm. to listen to this type of format, I guess. And I really wanted to change the stereotypical idea of what a, a radio play is. And I've acted in radio plays, and they're really fun. But I really didn't want that idea of kind of actors standing behind a a stand and mm. being in a booth and I wanted it to feel as immersive as possible and there is a difference actually between in my mind between a radio play and a podcast drama even though obviously this is going out on the radio which is you're listening to it in headphones and there's something much more intrusive I think mm. about that than there is um, listening to a stereo which is a bit further away. And I really wanted to capture that in the writing and the making of it, which is we're kind of eavesdropping in on these conversations or we're really in the kind of psyche of Connie as she talks to us. That was always my goal. So even the way that we recorded it, we got everyone kind of head mics rather than, yeah, as I said, speaking into a booth because mm. that to me felt way more like we're there listening with them and, and it's much less kind of performative or rehearsed or anything like that. That's really interesting, that point about headphones, because I generally listen to stuff with my headphones, even if I'm by myself in the house. And it's just a habit I got into. I don't actually need to because I'm in the house by myself. But yeah, I still do. And I don't I know wonder what, what it is. It is. It might be that intimacy, like it's much closer, but it is slightly worrying. I'm exactly the same. I I do everything with my headphones in now. Yeah. And the other day I had a Zoom and halfway through the Zoom, I realised that my headphones were in. They weren't connected to my laptop, but I could kind of half hear what was going yeah. on. I'm constantly listening to stuff in my headphones. Yeah, I've got in the car and started driving before now. Right. And then yeah. got to turn up the radio. And thought, why isn't it getting any louder? And thinking, oh, it's not it's not on the radio. It's in my ears. I've still got yeah. these things in. We were talking a little bit off mic, and I might as well say it again, because, uh, because it's interesting. I really like the idea that this isn't all being released at once, that it's being released two episodes a week, one on a Tuesday, one on a Thursday. Because I, I just think that in the age of binging, we 
often go to binging too quickly. I was watching The Last of Us. My nephew decided he wanted to watch The Last of Us. And I said to him, please don't watch it all in one sitting or in two sittings because you will entirely miss the whole drama of it, which is Mm. the the episodes that are lovely that you want to think about, the episodes that were scary or the episodes that were moving. To actually just push that straight out of your brain again and then crack on or watch the next thing, I think is is a massive mistake. So true. How do you tend to consume stuff? Well... I wish I was a bit more patient because you've just really sold it to me. Um, <laughs> I also have no self-control, so I don't practice what I'm preaching. Because <laughs> it's so nice to watch something and then chat about it with someone or, as you said, like reflect on it. And, and I really hope that with this kind of model, maybe people will do that. And it just kind of spark conversation. But no, I don't do that. I do, um, if I can, I, I kind of watch it all in a row. I binge it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have no self-control. That's why I like it when they withhold them. From, thank yeah, you, I remember Mayor of Easttown. Withholding it, yeah. Mayor of Easttown did week by week and I, I loved it. And I felt like exactly what you said, it really took me back to kind of teenage years. Yeah. Where I'd just be like, yeah, I can't wait to watch the OC on my Thursday night. <laughs> You're also working with another brilliant woman on this, Rosamund Pike. Yes. She is your lead. Tell me a bit about what what she's like to work with. I mean, I would imagine they're excellent. Truly, truly excellent. <laughs> Just like everything I wanted her to be and more. I really mean that. She was so collaborative and playful, which are the two kind of dream things to be, really, and invested so much time with me in bringing Connie and Emily so she sorry just to explain to anyone who hasn't yet listened Connie when she was younger was Emily Emily faked her death in 9-11 she then became Connie and so we spoke a lot about the differences between Emily and Connie and also Rosamond has a has children and I don't and Connie has children so it was really helpful talking to her about how to navigate talking to children about very difficult things. Obviously, I could remember being a child, but mm. it's quite a different thing. So I, I really absorbed a lot of what she said and then went back into the scripts before we went into recording. And one thing that kind of Rosamond and I were both really mindful of was that her her daughter in this, who's called Claire, w- was not the kind of stereotypical moody teenager, but in mm. fact, she took on a much more maternal or kind of adult role towards her mother. And I could relate to that a bit. I like that because uh, one of my real pet gripes about about TV drama is in things where the main character has a teenage daughter, she always in some way makes life worse. And I think it's a really unfair representative because I think most of the time teenage girls make life better in families. They do take on caring roles. They are helpful. They are given responsibility and able to deal with it. So I think teenage girls are much maligned in dramas. I agree. Uh, And I hope Isabella, who plays Claire would have agreed for this because, yeah, I really wanted to think about how to challenge that stereotype. And the good thing, of course, with audio, you know, all radio dramas is, you know, somebody can play the same, you know, you can play the same character. Rosamund Pike can play both of these characters without there having to be a great deal of, you know, in our minds, differentiate, put on a wig or, you know, age her up or any of those things. Exactly. And also what's even more kind of amazing is that you don't have to record the characters that are in the same scene in the same in the same place. Yeah. yeah so for some of this, I went to Prague to, to be with Rosamond for some of it. And then we would do other scenes back in London and play back what I'd recorded over in Prague. We tried our best to make sure that where possible, the actors were in the room together. Rosie Cavalieri said to me once that the best thing about doing it, it was she said, you know, that scene where I was on a train with loads of children. 
I didn't have to be on a train with loads of yeah, children. Exactly. And I was like, oh, yeah, they're just added in post-production. That's yeah, brilliant. although I was I was a bit annoying and did make sure that anything like food, there's quite a lot of food in the show. Yeah. I really wanted to make sure that they were eating. <laughs> so we, we did a lot of feeding for the recording. Is this your first directing gig? Other than theatre, yes. Yeah. I take it you want to do more now. Very much so. Yeah, I really loved it. I think maybe because because I've acted since I was little and then mixing that with writing, it felt like such a lovely alchemy, really. And so nice to be able to work with actors where we have this shared language and it just feels really exciting. Yeah. Um, So, yes, definitely hoping to do more of it. Okay, are you able to tell us anything else that you're working on? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I think so. (laughs) Send me a panicked email if you're not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm working on some different TV development things and also a film, but they're all in very different worlds. So I I don't really know what the theme of all my writing is. I think it's just uh, a very much like writing kind of messy people. Fair enough. Sticking drama, comedy, is that... Is that by, I put that little slash in there. Yeah, is, I saw is, it. Is that your uh, is that your feel? Do you think? I feel like the most dramatic things are funny, mm-hmm. so I don't know how to differentiate be- between the two. Yeah, definitely. I feel like if you want to, I don't mean this literally, but if you want to punch someone in the gut, the best way to do it is cover it up by making them laugh first. Yeah, and that's always my goal when I write. It's like yeah. I, I'd really like to kind of soften you in and then punch you in the gut. Yeah. I look forward to listening to the rest of these. Thank you. Because, yeah, it's such an interesting, such an interesting premise. And from what I've listened to so far, really well written and really well acted. Also, you've got Hugh Laurie. I have to mention him. Another dream person. So, so pleased he said yes. Great. One last question for you. If you were going to fake your own death, how do you think you'd (laughs) achieve it? God, I want to ask that one back. From my reading, lots of people either do it by saying they're going on a hike Right. Uh, or, as we know, the famous canoe. The yep. canoe exit. My fear is I'm bad at both of those things. So I'm, <laughs> I think I probably would end up dying and I wouldn't I wouldn't be faking it. <laughs> if I sent a message to my friends and said I was going for a hike, they would just absolutely not believe it. They would come around. That would already be the flag that yeah, something exactly. was majorly wrong. <laughs> they were like, that, that would not happen. That canoe guy, that story is so intrinsically hilarious, even though it's really alarming <laughs> and it tells you loads of stuff about male pride and all of that stuff. Yeah. Underpinning it is just the funniest, funniest sort of comedy of errors. And yet, even so, he got away with that for such a long time. I know. Such I know you've really got time. me thinking how many women have, have actually done it successfully. Them, I, I reckon there's loads out there. Yeah. I think it's probably much harder to do now, you know, in terms of like social media. Social and media. Yeah. In, in the old days, you'd probably just go to Thailand or something and just sort of yeah. just disappear into the crowd. But a photo of you could just circulate and that's it. You'd be done really, really quickly. Yeah, that is yeah. true. During the writing of it, we found someone, um, <laughs> there was a, a news article that came out that someone had fake their own death and then they got found in a curry house and someone took a picture of them (laughs) and so they were just out for a curry (laughs) yeah you'd have to actually change your interests change change them up a bit yeah you couldn't just be like well if he's gone first thing to do check all the curry houses yeah 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 this has been excellent chat daniela thank you ever so much for your time thank you just popping in to say People Who Knew Me starts on BBC Sounds on the 23rd of May, with episodes being released on Tuesdays and Thursdays every week. 
full broadcast on BBC Radio 4 will follow starting from Monday the 26th of June. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we throw our rackets at the patriarchy in disgust as we discuss all things women's sport. First up, a massive congratulations to Chelsea women, who, thanks to a solitary goal from Sam Kerr, beat Manchester United in the FA Cup final at the weekend. It was their third consecutive FA Cup victory, which makes them only the second women's club to achieve this. It was Man United's first ever crack at the title in front of a sold-out Wembley. Commiserations to them. It was a good performance, but not enough to deny Chelsea the victory. So now we've got that over and done with, let's crack on with the main event this week, which is tennis. I'm going to talk about the French Open in a minute, but first of all, give a little slow clap to the organisers of the Madrid Open, who last week denied the women's doubles finalists the opportunity to address fans after their match. Victoria Azarenka and Beatrice Haddad Maya beat Americans Coco Goff and Jessica Pagula, but not one of them were allowed to speak afterwards. If you're wondering, oh, that's funny, I wonder if that's because no one really cares about the doubles, it is worth noting that the male doubles finalists were, of course, invited to speak following their match. I mean, there are quite a few shouts of sexism at this tournament over things like the ball girls' outfits, which, having seen them, I would 100% agree with, and over the size of the birthday cakes presented to Carlos Alcaraz and Arena Sabalenka, which, having seen them, I'd say, I hope elite athlete Arena Sabalenka wasn't too hungry that day. Onwards, the French Open gets underway next week with qualifying beginning on the 22nd of May and the tournament proper on Sunday the 28th. As is oft discussed, the women's draw is unpredictable, but on clay, even more so, because no one likes clay. Well, some people do, but you know, it's tricky. Qualifying will be of interest to the Brits because with Emma Raducanu out through injury, there are no British women in the singles main draw entry. There are, however, a bunch hoping to enter the tournament through qualifying, including Jodie Burridge, Harriet Dart and Heather Watson. All of the Brits trying their hand at getting a spot through qualifying are ranked around the 150th kind of mark. So hard to predict what will happen, but you know, isn't it always? The draw will take place on Thursday 25th, so we don't know who's up against who in the first round as yet, but we do know who the top seeds are, and we can probably hazard a guess as to who looks likely to do well. World number one and obviously top seed Iga Sviantec is still a country mile ahead of the other top-ranked women in terms of points, unless we forget she's already won the tournament twice before. But she has had a slower start to the season than she did last year, having won just two titles so far this year. She'd won five by this point last year. She's world number one, so obviously she's an exceptional talent, but she's not dominating in quite the same way as she was last year. The current world number two, Arena Sabalenka, who I spoke about earlier, she might be the obvious challenger this year. She shut down Sviantec at the Madrid Open final last month to claim her third title of the year so far. And she also took out Maria Sakari en route to that victory. She was also the winner of the Australian Open back in January. That said, the Belarusian has just been upset in Rome by Sofia Kenin. So, as I said before, 
unpredictable. Coco Goff is also up there. She was one of last year's finalists, but she's suffered a few upsets of late and has sort of struggled really to get beyond the second round of tournaments in the last few months. So I probably wouldn't have her down as a major threat on this occasion. Kazakhstan's Elena Rybakina, however, made it as far as the quarterfinals here in 2001 in both the singles and the doubles. She reached the final of this year's Australian Open, where she ultimately lost out to Sabalenka, but she overcame her in the Indian Wells final and also made it to the final in Miami. As I record this on Tuesday, she's headed for the quarterfinal in Rome tomorrow, so we'll see how she gets on there. That is all from me this week. I will be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. No hippos this week. Plenty of goats though. Jen, what did you have us watching? Well, this week we wandered haplessly into a deregulated Tory paradise for some lols, courtesy of renowned dad, Eddie Murphy. (laughs) In real life, the comedian slash actor has just 10 kids, including one with former Spice Girl Melanie Brown, whom he famously disputed the paternity of for a while before it was confirmed by a DNA test. 10 kids, eh? That's just two staff members under Jeremy Hunt's future plans. Bargain. (laughs) The film was written by Jeff Rodkey, who once wrote a couple of episodes of Beavis and Butthead, really the only point of redemption on his filmography, the listings for the last 10 years of which link to zero Wikipedia entries. It was directed by Steve Carr, whose previous hits included Next Friday and Doctor Doolittle 2. I don't mean to be rude about the pedigree of this film. They've made more films than I have, to be fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Big on the sequels, though. Big on the sequels of... I, I don't know, I haven't watched either of those films. I imagine quite mediocre films to start with, but, I mean, who knows? I've also not watched Daddy Daycare 2 or whatever. What's the but... first one called? Is that called Last Friday? I think it's just called Friday. That, that It has its some charms, but not many. I knew boys at university who fucking loved it, but uh, yeah, I've, I've not seen it myself. Anyway, uh, critics did not like this film, which mm. also only scores 27% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. But to be fair, this isn't a film that is supposed to appease critics, is it? However, it does prove once again that we can't trust the public to vote. It was a box office success, making... $160 million from a budget of $60 million and spawning two sequels. Sequels which Murphy himself declined to return to. Ah, uh, He was busy with all 80 Shrek films, I guess. I thought you were going to say what? his 10 children. But right, yeah, no. me too. One of those films only has 1% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, that is amazing. Isn't Can we really? watch that one? <laughs> goodness me it's got cuba gooding jr who just it might any excuse to mention him just so i can say cuba gooding jr who basically is a walking erection who walks like he's got an erection yeah <laughs> which sounds perfect for a children's film if i'm honest with you <laughs> <laughs> let's look at the plot Charlie Hinton is a marketing executive who thinks children want to eat broccoli for breakfast and he loses his job when it transpires alas they do not. <laughs> Sad times for Charlie and his scarcely sentient wife, played by Regina King, whose 
unbelievably a lawyer despite barely uttering a word throughout the 92 minutes of the film. Sad times because they've just enrolled their kid Ben into Chapman Academy where ball breaker Gwyneth Harridan, see what they did there, played by Angelica Houston, see what they did there, hopes to crush the spirit of all children through her cripplingly expensive and inappropriate world of early academia. Charlie can't get a job, and nor can his former workmate Phil, played by Jeff Garlin. So after six weeks of looking fair play, he decides to kill two birds with one stone by turning his home into a nursery, at which Ben becomes one of the, I don't know, pupils. Is that what we're calling it? Pupils. Inmates. I don't know. I've got a kid at nursery. I don't know. Don't know the answer. Lols, they're men, say some of their prospective customers. (laughs) Because that is the issue here, right? Never mind their total lack of experience and qualifications, as well as scant regard for any kind of regulatory provision for the well-being of small children. Hilarity ensues. Only. (laughs) That is until, with the help of another former colleague, Star Trek nut Marvin, played by Steve Zahn, they happen to make a huge success of it all, poaching Harridan's pupils if that's what we're calling it, we are, and giving her the reet hump. She sets out to sabotage them, but will she succeed? Running alongside this is a laboured subplot. Charlie used to be a successful businessman who wasn't covered in shit all the time. (sighs) Sad times for him now, but isn't it nice how Charlie can actually be a father to his child instead of working late all the time? Mums, are you listening? Looking after your kids is nice. Would he go back to those (laughs) glory days? You'll have to watch to find out slash listen to us talk for a few more minutes. Now, I don't think any of us had seen this film before. So, I mean, I have to say I was expecting it to be sexist. I wasn't expecting it to be a patch on Kindergarten Cop. I was right on both counts. I wasn't expecting it to be so horribly unfunny. (laughs) Guys, discuss. Well, I have to say, I think it's better than Kindergarten Cop. Definitely. I think it's... Well, I mean, we can talk about why. I'm still not saying it's good, but I didn't hate it, and I hated Kindergarten Cop. I mean, in as much as it's actually about something, it does, you know, the cost of childcare is actually an issue, as opposed to whatever thing, whatever ridiculous plot they use to get Arnold Schwarzenegger. Secondly, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I know people think he can, but he can't act. Whereas Angelica Houston Houston and Eddie Murphy are both very talented comic actors, maybe if they're given the right material. But even so, Angelica Houston makes a really decent fist out of a poor role here. And there's no one good in Kindergarten Cop at all. And I just find Eddie Murphy and Regina King, even though she's given nothing to do, and Steve Zahn, even though he doesn't have the hugest amount to do, much more likeable on-screen presences than I find Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I would say, yeah, I didn't like it, but I didn't hate it. If only Eddie Murphy had brought some of his quite formidable acting chops to this film, just a tiny bit, but I just like, this guy is faxing this in. He's Mm. really given its... Eddie fucking Murphy, mm. he's really unengaging in it. And I was like, oh, at least, you know, I'm going to enjoy watching Eddie Murphy. And I felt like he sucked the life out of every single scene he was in, which is every single scene. <laughs> <laughs> and no, I mean, it certainly wasn't wasn't made for his talents because everything you've said about him is true, Jen. And a lot of what he made in the 1980s doesn't stand up now either because of his attitude towards 
gay people or, you know, because a lot of his language and, and all of that stuff and, you know, conversations about things that, you know, like, I don't know, blackface that were in his films and things like that. But nonetheless, I, I think he's brilliant when he when he's given good stuff. He is, yeah. He's absolutely brilliant. I fucking loved him in the 1980s. Like I say, oh, none too. of that stuff stands up, but I absolutely loved him. You know how people have that... Sort of people who are slightly older than me have that thing about Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, those tapes where they just Derek call and Clive. Look. Derek and Clive. Yeah, yeah. I love Derek and Clive. Yeah, whereas that was like for me, I was a bit I was a bit young for Derek and Clive. I didn't discover that till I was a bit older. Whereas well, I was same, yeah. yeah, genuinely watching Delirious and Raw when I was about nine or ten and thinking, Oh my god, this is outrageous and yet seemingly brilliant at the same time. Again, don't write in. I know none of it stands up now. And that's, he is such a ferocious presence. At one point, I paused it to go and have a glass of water and a wee and think about what I was doing with my life. And I said <laughs> to Gary, I was like, oh my God, this film is terrible. And he went, yeah, I didn't think it was going to stand up. And I'm like, have you seen it? And he went, coming to America. And I went, I wish I was watching coming yeah. to America. I'm watching Daddy Daycare. But I also agree that coming to America potentially doesn't stand up these days. Maybe one day we'll find yeah. out. But that's it. I think, Jen, your original question was, it's supposed to be a comedy, was it funny? And that is where it, is, it really lets itself down. It is, it's quite an interesting concept. And I think it's a concept that would always be dated 20 years on. Like, yeah. men, looking after kids, what's going to happen? But <laughs> I just don't feel like they do very much with it. And I'm left with the question that we quite often end up with in Mated or Dated of, who is this film for? Is Families. it a kid's film? Yeah, mm. I think it's a family film. That's why he's not letting rip. It's a family film. It's for people to take their kids to the cinema to say. Mm. I agree with everything you've said. Like, he is a real presence, like a real performer. And this is just like, uh. So obviously the, the content of it is going to be clean and, you know, family friendly and whatever. But there's just nothing to him in this film there's no sparkle at all i don't think agreed and potentially why he didn't do the sequels yeah the person who i think is genuinely funny in this and he plays a character that is kind of got arrested development i guess is steve's arm i think he's he's good in it given what he has to do which like everyone else is really fucking little i think he is genuinely entertaining i can see why the kids take a shine to him I cannot see why the kids take a shine to Jeff Garlin and Eddie Murphy's characters. No, I mean, I don't like, just because I remember him as the annoying one in Treme, so I don't really like Steve Zahn. So I didn't I didn't warm to him particularly. I know he's in lots of other things, but... I was just like, it's oh, one of the God. world's Bad best eight. monkeys. <laughs> Shall we talk about the women? Because obviously you can be a Harridan <laughs> or you can do absolutely nothing or you can like be a bit loopy because you got divorced. So it, like, it's... It's not great, is it? If we're talking about sort of family-friendly messages to kids, I, I, I don't think the messages about the women in this are, are particularly progressive. I think they're meant to be ball breakers, the women. Oh, she's in called this. Miss Harridan. I mean, it's well, yeah. not subtle at all. And she runs a school where kids learn stuff. And fine, the idea is they're way too young to be studying mm. for their saps and all of that sort of stuff. We're not China, where this is a thing where kids are really like pushed into academia from teeny tiny mm. ages. There should definitely be that, um, what's it called, Jen? The Montessori way of learning yes. is that it yeah, where you get yeah. to play and you learn through play and she would be having none of that but like she's teaching the kids stuff and the message is 
women aren't fun. They're the options of daycare, aren't they? There's this woman who is literally a witch. She's got to have a massive come down. And yeah, she's an arsehole. And she, and Angelica Houston is amazing. She gives it all she's got. She's brilliant. But like, that's the options. It's like the other woman who runs a daycare centre is what? Trailer park trash in inverted commas? So they're the options. The women are doing this badly. Thank goodness for the men. So this is the thing that annoyed me, I think, the most about it, is that obviously his wife's going to go out and be a lawyer, right? So she's like, oh, a career woman, whatever. And Miss Harridan is, you know, th- th- it's literally her name, as you say, Mick. So they're supposed to be ball breakers, but in a completely ineffectual way. And that, like, you could argue that the film acknowledges like how difficult it is to look after small children. And, yeah. and like it is, right? Mm-hmm. As we all know. But ultimately, it says like, yeah, but we can just, you know, we'll just like breeze on in and just fucking do it and be great at it and like blah, blah, blah. Or alternatively, this film is saying more men should stay at home with their children and let their wives actually focus on their career. That's another way you could read this. You could. I certainly didn't read it like that, I have to say. I I wish it it could have said that, Hannah. And it had the opportunity to say that, uh, but I didn't hear that. I like your idea, Hannah, is what I'm saying. And I think we should make Daddy Daycare better. (laughs) I agree. I agree. Yeah. When my nephew was born, my brother stayed at home. And that even then, quite recently, was considered to be like, wow, wow. So this film 20 years ago, the context that it was in was still that it was really, really, really weird for men to stay at home with their children. Oh, yeah. Well, you've got the character who just calls them a loser the whole time because mm. they're mm. at home with their kids. I mean, what kind of guy wants to look after his kids, let alone other people's kids? They've started daycare. And part of me is like, yes, what you've just said, Hannah, would be glorious if they were using this as an opportunity to go, actually, guys, this is hard work. We should give it more credit and respect than we currently give to women who are doing this job paid and unpaid. But it, it, is. it is hard work for them. It is hard mm. work for them. But for then they don't, minutes. I don't think they end up with a good daycare centre, Hannah. I don't think the kids are having any kind of enriching experience at that daycare. Basically, the, what they do is they go like, oh, God, we've got to clean up poos. We don't know what to do. This is a nightmare. And then they go, oh, right, OK, well, we can all speak Klingon now. So that's that solved and everything's settled and fine. So it's just like the solution is so easy. <laughs> like, and But, it, but it's a daft a family comedy. It's not supposed to be offering a solution, is it? No, but it annoys me that the female characters are as shit as they are and yet they just get to be like, we just fucking breeze on in here and sort it all out. Like, despite being utterly incompetent, we have that, somehow that, managed to... The message that it is, is like, yeah, they do find it hard work. You're right, Hannah, there is all of this chaos. They're, like, covered in poo. They don't know what they're doing. The house is a mess when his missus gets home from work and has to tidy it up because he's so tired he needs to go to sleep. And all of that... But at the end, it's, well, what we've learned in how to be good at this daycare job is we just have fun with the children. What could be Mm. better than just spending all day having fun with the children? And I I don't think that's an accurate message about childcare either. And again, fun family film, but I think it undermines what it could have said. Although you're right, it was still a very important conversation to have. Still is. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I agree with you, Hannah, but I hated the film. <laughs> I'm, only, I'm only attempting to steal man this because I, I think that I, I just don't think it's as, or personally, I just didn't find it as terrible as 
I mean, I would I, I would say it's slightly higher than twenty seven percent, maybe thirty three percent, only slightly higher. I don't think don't think it's it's that terrible. But is interestingly, I just didn't hate it as much as I was I was braced. I watched this well early because I was like, I'm getting this shit out of the way because I I don't want this hanging over me for the next five days that I have to watch this film. So to say pleasantly surprised at how absolutely not completely terrible it was just quite terrible as as we all know i'm i am not averse to like some absolute shite so i thought like i'm not i didn't i didn't think i would enjoy it particularly but i just i thought it would be funnier than it was i think there was one bit where i was like that is actually quite funny which is where the uh equivalent of an ofsted inspector goes around and he's doing the puppet show the punch and judy show (laughs) <laughs> like oh 15 minutes in therapy blah 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 and i did actually have a little bit of a lot at that i found that quite amusing but apart from that i was just like it's just so dry that's my main issue with it is that it was just mm. so dry mm. the kids are really underdeveloped as characters and that is paying it too much tribute that there's just no there's the little guy tommy wears his costume all the time and the little guy who speaks klingon but like they don't do anything apart from run around and scream and maybe that is absolutely what kids of that age do but i think with better films of which there are legion the children are given much more to do and funnier lines interestingly i mean there's only so much you can ask of children obviously you've got to be able to find people but interestingly most of them still appear to be actors in fact one of the little girl that can read is Elle fanning yes yeah and i did have a little look to see and at the end they've got that little bit where they have the little boy, his son, is he called Ben? Yeah. yeah. They have sort of the outtakes with him. And you think, yeah, that's probably unbelievably difficult to film with children yeah. to get them to say what they are supposed to say at that moment and not mess it up. So, yeah, I mean, anyone who makes a film with that many children must be some sort of masochist, I think. Isn't it fun as well that the obviously the message of the film or one of the take home messages of the film is that like you know, you know daycare's hard, kids are hard, but all you need to do is have fun with them. All of these children have jobs aged four. <laughs> all of the yeah. ones in the film, <laughs> yeah, They're not these ones. Yeah. They've got a job. <laughs> well, quite. It's quite slight, isn't it? It's quite a slight yeah. film. Yeah, agreed. But there is a market for, you know, look at how many of those. Eddie Murphy or Tyler Perry or those films that, you know, still do like unbelievably well at the box office. So it was clearly doing something right. It just maybe it wasn't for us. The reason people will have gone to see it is because it's got Eddie Murphy in it. Mm -hmm. And I'd be interested to know. Well, I mean, Rotten Tomatoes sort of sort of tells us what the audience approval rating is. (laughs) But uh, I'd like to know how many people of that... uh, $160 $160 million box office return were like, I've had a lovely time today. I don't regret my life choices. If you own Daddy Daycare on DVD, write in. <laughs> <laughs> I always think that with kids' films anyway. I mean, given that lots of my friends just would take the, took their kids to the cinema just so they could sit in a darkened room and their children would be quiet for ages... You know, you probably feel like you've got quite good value for money out of your 13 quid or whatever if they've just had something that entertained them. Can't wait for the day, Hannah. Cannot (laughs) wait. Bring on her attention span. Okay, lads, I think um, think the time's come. Rated or dated? 
I don't find either word to be appropriate, to be honest. Okay. It's definitely not rated. But that said, it did also feel like it could have been made yesterday. It didn't feel particularly dated in that sense. So, I don't know. I suppose dated in as much as it's not rated. I think it's dated. Hannah's, again, she's right in everything she just said, but I just think there would be more consideration given to the female characters if this film was made today. Maybe in Daddy Daycare 27, the women uh-huh. have got more than four lines and aren't witches. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think you'd have a character called Miss Harrison now, possibly. I don't know. I hope you wouldn't. But... I don't know. It's quite, <laughs> it's quite well done. Miss yeah. Trunchbull, yeah, exactly that. Yeah, but Harrison is an actual word, isn't it? So, like, I don't know. It's a bit like calling her Miss... Harrison. Miss whiny bitch, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, big, big old dated for me. Sorry, lads, again. <laughs> like I say, Jen, I didn't hate it, which is actually quite unusual for the film she made recently. <laughs> it's been a rough ride. It's been a yeah. rough run. <laughs> Who's next? It is me. Uh, I'm taking us to the 1980s, and we are going to watch, and I'm excited for this one. No. We're going to watch Big. Don't make me hate Uh-oh. big. I <laughs> know, that is the worry. <laughs> but whatever happens, whatever happens the next time we do Rated or Dated, can we all just swear now that we will always have the piano scene? Nothing can take that away from <laughs> Don't us. make me hate big. Standard issue for all women.